Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting August 6th, 2008. I'm Steve Mursky. China is what the entire planet is talking about right now. Philip Pan spent seven years there as the Beijing bureau chief for the Washington Post. He's the author of the new book, Out of Mao's Shadow, The Struggle for the Soul of a New China. Scientific American's David Biello recently spent three weeks reporting in China. Philip, David, and I got together to talk about China in terms of science, technology, and environmental issues. We met on July 31st at Scientific American's offices in New York City. Dave, you spent a little over three weeks in China? Yes. So what is the scene as you saw it there? My take on China as a whole? There you go. Why not? <laughs> um, well, I started off the trip in Beijing, and obviously Beijing was uh, very caught up in Olympics uh, fever. Everything from extending the subway lines to banning cars from the streets, attempting to rein in some of the uh, uh, woeful air pollution that they have there. Uh, it's not unlike L.A. in wet because... When the weather doesn't cooperate, basically an inversion layer sits and the pollution isn't going anywhere. So no matter how many cars you ban, you may not clear the skies uh, of Beijing uh, unless the weather cooperates. They also struggle with factories, both legal and illegal, um, in the surrounding environs um, and surrounding provinces. In terms of pollution sources? In terms of pollution sources. And so this has been a big challenge uh, leading up to the Olympics and, you know, has obviously led to some athletes deciding not to participate or to take um, what, scientifically speaking, is a uh, foolish precaution, wearing masks, which actually would not help that much. Mm-hmm. But I also traveled throughout the country uh, uh, out to uh, Shandong province to visit uh, a city that's trying to go carbon neutral, something that uh, no city in the U.S. has uh, the temerity to attempt at this point, uh, and also out west As you mentioned, um, I was there when the earthquake uh, took place. Um, I didn't get any closer than Chongqing, which is uh, uh, still some distance from the epicenter. But uh, I did experience one of the aftershocks, which, uh, just to give a frame of reference, was uh, 6.1 on the Richter scale, bigger than the recent uh, uh, trembler in uh, in Los Angeles. Let me turn to, to Philip. I just read a blog item that you put up, speaking of the earthquake, that was specifically related to the situation with the schools and school construction. Mm-hmm. Tell us about the, um, the, the infrastructure basically in China. And, you know, the earthquake is, is a, an extreme example, but how is the country dealing with modernizing in, in, with that unbelievably huge population? Well, there's been tremendous investment in infrastructure over the years. You have uh, pretty good airports all around the country. And uh, uh, just over the, the past 10 years, you've seen a real uh, interstate highway system emerge in China as well. Um, but there's a persistent concern about the quality of some of the construction. Um, this is because uh, local officials sometimes take bribes and allow construction companies to build things below standard. And so we have a situation in, in, in the Sichuan province where the earthquake occurred, where um, schools were collapsing, uh, collapsed, at a much uh, greater rate than other government buildings. And the suspicion is, of course, that um, uh, local officials were taking bribes and allowed these schools to be built this way. Thousands of children died as a result. And it's become a real uh, a political headache right now for the government because this kind of concern really resonates with the public. Your blog item also mentioned how 
journalists have really pretty much ignored the the uh, warnings of government and gone in to investigate things that they weren't supposed to, and how that's paradoxically going to possibly help the government. It, it did help the government, and this is a pattern that we've seen again and again over the past few years, and I describe it in detail in the book. Um, when the government acts more um, openly, more democratically, more, and is more tolerant of, for example, journalists and others pushing for freedom, it becomes a more efficient government. So when the journalists rush to the uh, scene of the earthquake, despite an order by the government for them not to go, um, information traveled back to Beijing faster. Um, they were also able to um, put more pressure on the government to respond to the earthquake. And I think uh, they also showed the leaders um, in a more positive light than, than would have been if they didn't have journalists there. And certainly Hu Jintao and Wen Jiabao looked better after in the aftermath of that earthquake than President Bush did uh, after Hurricane Katrina. And so this resulted in, the, uh, in a big victory for the party, even though its initial instinct was to prevent the journalists from going. And so I think we see this situation where people are getting more freedom in China, and at the same time, the party, the one-party system is getting stronger. And this is a dynamic that can be, it seems very contradictory, but I think we'll maybe seeing for uh, some time yet still in China. Let's talk about science and technology in China, since that's what Scientific American is most concerned about. Is there a change in the the flow of brains? I mean, when I was in grad school, we had many kids from China who would go to grad school here, and many of them would stay here. But what what's that flow like? Are more and more people going back to China now to take advantage of the skills they've picked up elsewhere in the world and, and applying them at home? Yes, there's, you, you, we do see more people going back to China because the economy there is growing so fast. Some of them, uh, many of them, feel that they can get um, there are more opportunities for them in China than in the West and, and in the United States. But I think the overall numbers still show that most of these students who go overseas to study, especially in the science and uh, technology fields, end up staying overseas. The government's trying to do more to bring them back, um, and this goes to the sort of the central uh, contradiction between science and authoritarianism in some ways. Um, you have a situation, you know, where the, the party is very much in control of the education system, of the labs, and, you know, science wants to be free. Information wants to flow freely, and you have a, um, a government that's not used to that. And so scientists sometimes prefer to stay overseas because of that. Is the um, kind of you know, creeping xenophobia that, that we're seeing here in the United States, is that helping China keep some of its homegrown talent? Yes, I think that's definitely the case. Um, you know, people sometimes say that um, when students from China come here and study and they go back, that they're bringing back um, Western ideas, bringing back these you know, you know, values of, of human rights and democracy. But uh, And that's partly true. Uh, definitely I've seen a lot of people come back with, with these kinds of ideas. But others come back and they've had such a negative experience in the United States that they they become defensive about the one-party system. Mm -hmm. They become fans of it in some ways. After all, you know, they really benefited. You know, they grew up in this period where the one-party system has resulted in this tremendous boom, and they were beneficiaries of it. And so um, I think it cuts both ways. What's, uh, what's the, um, the aftermath of, of all the tainted products that uh, seemed to come out of China, I believe, last summer? What's been going on there? In relation to that? Well, there hasn't been a lot of discussion of it really in the Chinese media. Um, but this is a, another example of the weakness of the one-party political system. You know, they've shown that the one-party system can deliver economic growth, but it's an open question whether they can um, 
deliver other public goods. A clean environment, as Dave discussed, has been a real challenge for them. Um, Because local officials are so addicted to economic growth, they're not willing to... uh, addicted because they profit from it personally. They're not, they haven't been willing to really uh, enforce uh, environmental laws, but a uh, you know, good health care system, education system. So these are all things that they're, the one-party system is, is struggling to deliver. And it'll be interesting to see if people are going to be willing to put up with deficiencies in these areas. What's the attitude about global warming? What are, I know there are, there are coal plants, you know, Seemingly an endless yeah. number on the uh, on in the in the pipeline, if you will. Mm. Uh, so, what other than you know, we we heard Dave talk about the the city that's trying to be carbon neutral. But what's the overall scheme there to try to deal with global warming? Well, the central government, I think, has there are people in the central government who recognize this as a problem and who understand that something has to be done. But again, you know, this party is in power because of economic growth. And they are wary of doing anything that's going to slow that down. Um, part of them, uh, part of the people in power, um, I think they also resent um, some of the finger pointing at China, even though they're now, I think, the number one producer of mm-hmm. these greenhouse gases. That happened about, that's, what, a month ago? That, yeah, that well, shift yeah. happened? Yeah. Over the course of the last year. Yeah. Per capita, they're still obviously yeah. way behind sure. the United States and other industrial nations. And they, 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 there's this argument that the United States and the West, you know, they went through their industrial revolutions. You know, we need to go through ours. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, that ignores the argument that, you know, there's been lessons learned. You know, China should be able to take a different path. And there's a budding uh, environment, environmental movement right now in China um, trying to put pressure on the government to do some uh, something about this. But, again, you know, these officials are addicted to economic growth. They needed to stay in power. They needed to, to enrich themselves. And they haven't been willing to take the hard steps to shut down, for example, coal plants and, and other um um, other uh, factories that are contributing to the problem. What I was surprised by in, in my own kind of interviews and interactions with people was how aware um, everybody I spoke to from uh, people in the most remote villages uh, to, you know, uh, sophisticated urbanites were aware of uh, global warming and, and, and had a fairly uh, progressive view uh, of, of action that needed to be taken to do something about it. Now, they didn't necessarily know what exactly that action should be or how it should inconvenience uh, their lives. But uh, certainly awareness of the issue was universal, at least as far as I could see. So it sounds like you have a population that's primed to act once some kind of a reasonable plan mm-hmm. is developed to do something about the problem. There's definitely a constituency for change, you know, to, yeah. to, to act on this. Um, whether that, you know, that public demand change ever gets translated into policy one and whether that policy can ever be implemented because of this bureaucratic structure that they have over there that's very top down and and dependent on profits that's an open question i think and they do have some more aggressive uh policies than even the u.s at at present as far as renewable energy goes um whether those will actually be realized they've had a lot of problems with kind of uh wind farms that uh, didn't perform up to um expectations, but they do have uh, fairly aggressive targets for how much energy needs to come from renewable resources like the wind and the sun. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have become the manufacturer, uh, as in all things, uh, for photovoltaics and all the, mm-hmm. and the, the wind turbine blades that are, that are, they're basically powering the green revolution in the West. Um, you know, they're manufacturing all that stuff. And uh, uh, eventually, if the China price gets applied to uh, renewables, um, that may be what makes those energy sources uh, viable mm-hmm. globally. That's a good point. 
Let's talk a little bit more about energy in a, in a related subject. What's the car situation? How many people have, how many cars are there on the roads in China? China has 24 cars for every thousand people. Have a population of 1.3 billion or so. We have 800 for every thousand people out of a population of 350 million right. or so. And in the next generation, the car population in China is going to explode. Very easily could. Uh, certainly everybody that, uh, that I saw in my short time there was, was extremely interested in, in purchasing a car. And if, if they, uh, you know, happen to be, uh, from the more upwardly mobile kind of middle class, they were very interested in buying not a fuel efficient car, but, uh, uh, a Hummer even, wow. um, you know, just pretty much following the exact yeah. same, uh, uh, model as, as, uh, the American aspirational, you know, American dream, uh, model. And certainly the suburbs, uh, seem to be a growing trend. And mm-hmm. I don't know if you noticed that, Philip, but, sure. uh, uh, you know, I, vis- I visited a suburb called Orange County outside of uh, uh-huh. Beijing, and it, it really looked like Orange County. They even had, like, the palm trees and everything. And I saw these in, in all the cities I visited, uh, Chongqing, um, uh, Qingdao, uh, various other cities that I, that I visited. They were ringed by suburbs, and uh, the folks who, who lived there, the, you know, the, the privileged uh, few, were, were using cars to commute into the uh, cities for work. So there's going uh, to be more and more cars... Obviously, dealing with the pollution problem is going to wind up being something people want to deal with for its own sake, but also because it's going to be a health issue. Yes. More and more Chinese are going to start to be concerned about respiratory conditions that the pollution is going to be uh, tied to. 17 of the uh, 20 most polluted cities in the world are in China, and um, they they recognize that this is a problem, um, and they and certainly the people recognize it. Um, the healthcare system is a mess, is a complete mess too right now. Um, they're, they're, they're really struggling to solve these, um, problems, but I think, um, it's this, um, political system that's in place that's making it very difficult to do so. Um, you know, the, we'll have to see if they can, they can, you know, tackle this without public pressure, you know, directly affecting the, the policymakers. The, uh, the World Bank, uh, last year put out a report saying that, uh, air pollution, was costing the Chinese economy a hundred billion dollars a year, and that about seven hundred fifty thousand uh, extra deaths could be attributed to that air pollution. Now, that's not just the air pollution from cars. You have to remember that uh, even though uh, China may present a developed uh, face to the world via the Olympics, uh, the vast majority of Chinese are still living in the countryside, and indoor air pollution is the, is the biggest challenge they're facing. Because uh, people cook smoke, in the house yeah, with, with smoke wood from and stoves. charcoal. Yeah. Smoke from stoves. And they're burning coal, they're burning charcoal, they're burning wood. And the particulate matter and the soot and everything else is uh, getting to their lungs and uh, uh, cutting short their lives. Now, the situation is only going to get worse because, mm-hmm. you know, you said the vast majority of the population lives on the countryside, but that's already begun to change. Now. Mm-hmm. I think the latest population figure is now a majority of the people live in the cities. Mm-hmm. And that's only going to increase. Now, this... This is the, the, the most, uh, the big, the most massive, uh, urbanization that, um, uh, you know, migration that we've ever seen in the history of the world. And so you're going to see development of mega cities all across, uh, this country and the environmental pressures on the land there are only going to intensify because of that. It's amazing, uh, just the scale of development in China. It's really, I, I have never seen anything like it. They call the construction crane the national bird of China because really <laughs> everywhere you go, that's what you see, and you don't see too many real birds. Yeah, yeah. And key to the future of this, I think, are the environmental groups. You know, the, the government sort of has a love-hate relationship with these 
environmental groups. The government doesn't like NGOs and civil, uh, you know, civil organizations that it doesn't control. It doesn't allow labor unions. It doesn't allow uh, independent churches. Um, and it generally wouldn't allow an, a, a, these environmental organizations except that it needs them, I think. And so they've tolerated the environmental organizations because they're on the right message. And now the question is going to come up at some point. When these environmental groups push too far, what is the government going to do? Are they going to stand with the environmentalists, stand with the people who are pushing and challenging the government? Or are they going to, are they going to back down and side with the cronies, you know, in the business, uh, in the businesses and, and party officials who are profiting from, for example, the new dams that are being built? Yeah, in and off the record conversations, many of the folks involved in government that I, that I talked to, uh, you know, were, were as candid as they could be in saying that the environmental groups were performing a very useful function in terms of uh, raising public awareness of these issues and also uh, policing these issues. Uh-huh. Uh, the government, for, for all its reach, can't be everywhere, can't be at every, you know, outflow pipe or uh, smokestack. Uh, and the environmental groups seem to be doing a uh, better job of uh, kind of pointing to uh, problematic uh, outflows of water pollution and saying, hey, this is a problem. Can we clean this up? And then the government um, can, in some cases, step in and in other cases. In other cases, they'll, <laughs> invest, they'll arrest the environmentalists. Yes, yeah, exactly. You know, we have a whole number, you know, I think more than a dozen uh, different environmental activists have been imprisoned in China over the past several years for, for challenging local officials who are polluting. Yeah. And getting back to the schools, uh, uh, China just imprisoned uh, a man, and I'm uh, blanking on his name, who had posted a video uh, showing uh, the school collapses. Uh, he was. You, you mentioned him in your blog, Adam. I think that's another guy. They arrested. Oh, <laughs> he was a he was a webmaster. Basically, he ran a website that um, basically did um, civil rights activism in, in these communities, and he was trying to help these parents organize uh, and demand an investigation into the collapse of these schools, and he. he He's been arrested. Uh, this is the second time, actually, that he's been arrested on these types of charges. So it takes a lot of courage to, to push yeah. forward for this change. Mm-hmm. A lot of courage. What are what are some of the the real success stories, other than just the the unbelievable economic development that we've seen in the last decade or so? What struck you in, your, in the seven years you spent there? What comes to mind really is is what happened during the SARS epidemic. Um, you know, you had a situation where the government um, was covering up. Um, this disease, and um, it could have continued this way. The disease could have spread uh, much faster, and it could have been a much more uh, dangerous situation for the entire world if it weren't really for one man, um, a doctor who worked at a, a military hospital. He was an older fellow. His name is John Yanyong, and um, you know he had been a, a, an ardent communist in his youth. He had, was a member of the People's Liberation Army, a senior party official, really. And um, during the Cultural Revolution, he had suffered. And he sort of lost his faith in communism, like almost everyone in the country, really. Um, but he needed to believe in something. And what he turned to was medicine and science. Um, as a profession, um, he, he felt if he couldn't um, change society, at least he could do right by his patients. And when, during the uh, SARS epidemic, the Minister of Health went on television and, and lied to the country and to the world about the situation, I think he said there were only seven people who had died. This doctor knew there were more um, just in his own hospital. And he knew from other colleagues at other hospitals that the total was probably well over 100 already. And in fact, it was over 300, I think, at that time. And so um, he was infuriated because the Minister of Health was also a doctor. And he felt that this man was violating the, his, uh, you know, the, the ethics of his profession. And so he um, wrote a letter that was eventually made its way to the foreign press. And, you know, almost um, overnight, you know, really within a matter of weeks, the government backed down ended the cover-up, fired the Minister of Health, fired the mayor of Beijing. And it was really, to me, um, 
an inspiring example of how one person, you know, who had something to believe in could really change the course of events and the course of history, really. What's different about the government? This isn't really a science issue, but I'm just fascinated because I remember, I'm old enough to remember, if you did something like that in China, uh-huh. let's say 25 years ago, yep. <laughs> you weren't going to get away with it. That's right. So as the as the party learned how to be flexible and that's how it stays, I mean, you've, you've sort of said this already, uh-huh. it stays in power by being flexible enough to back down at some things. That's right. I think, um, it, it, well, you know, the most dramatic example of it backing down is it backed down on its ideals. You know, it was once a Marxist socialist kind of party. Now it's essentially a capitalist party. Um, it still calls itself the Communist Party, but it doesn't really do anything communist anymore except, you know, try to stay in power. <laughs> um, well, the other thing that's happened, I think, is um, the explosion of uh, media uh, in, in China. You know, the Internet... Um, has has a has had a tremendous impact, but also you know newspapers, uh, uh, televisions, uh, stations, radio stations, they all are doing much more than they they uh, they could before. The party, uh, when it embraced market reforms, you know these these um, media outlets realized that they needed to deliver something that people wanted to watch, and so real journalism is, is was was part of that. And so when this man was able to um, stand up to the government and and. And the, the word got out in the international media. It quickly made its way into the, onto the internet, so people in China could see it. And then it would spread very quickly on um, on uh, text messages, on cell phones, and on instant messaging, on email. It wasn't something that the government could completely control anymore. So they've, you know, they're still they still run all the newspapers and the television stations, but they don't have the iron grip on it that they used to. But the government is smart about this. They they also recognize that it's more than just censorship. Um, it's also using the internet to get their message across, and so they've ha- actually hired hundreds of thousands of people around the country who uh, go into internet chat rooms and bulletin boards and post things uh, in favor of the government to support the government. And these people don't obviously don't identify themselves as on the payroll of the propaganda bureau, and so they're trying to use the internet to direct public opinion that way, and that can be very effective as well. Hundreds of thousands of people. I think, you know, by, by some estimates, I think it's as many as 200,000. Yeah, know. a lot of them college kids. Remember, it's 1.3 billion, so right. 100,000 is yeah. uh, uh, a different fraction. They, they call this group the 50 cent party because the rumor <laughs> is that they're paid 50 cents for each posting they put up on the internet that's, and, that's favorable to the party. <laughs> and I'd add uh, two things to that. Uh, the, um, the, the older gentleman that you're mentioning, uh, it seemed to me the, that the yeah, SARS case, yeah, the mean? SARS yeah. case, uh, that the, uh, retired, uh, cadres, uh, were far more, um, critical and, uh, uh open about, uh, their criticism of the government, of the country, of the state of affairs, um, primarily, I think, because they had far less to lose, um, as, I, as they got older, I don't. I, you that's know, definitely I part of it. Yeah. I also think it's part of it is that they're just they in many ways are more idealistic because they that's were true. they grew up with the revolution. They believed in it. They've they had to let go of that belief, but they turned to something else. A lot of the um, people coming up through the the Chinese um, scientific and medical ranks today are much more cynical about their purpose. You know, the state has basically trained them to serve the state, and you know they're look they're more concerned now about. Um, Providing for their own families, of, of, mm-hmm. about making a profit, you know, they're not sure what to believe in, mm-hmm. and so um, this older generation still has a has a role to play, even though, you know, they're fading from the scene in many ways. Yeah. And on the censorship side of things, I can say, you know, frankly, that the tentacles of censorship reach all the way to the United States. There are 
a number of uh, researchers in the U.S. who, you know, do not want to talk to me on the record for fear of losing their ability to travel back to mm. China mm. Uh, to investigate various issues. There are a number of um, uh, researchers in China who, you know, while, while more than happy to share their research, you know, want to make sure that it's presented in the appropriate light. Yeah. Um, and a lot of that, I think, is uh, self-censorship. It's not that there's any direct uh, government effort to control you. It's just a generalized uh, fear of what the repercussions could be if I don't present the right information. And this goes back to the original issue of you know, whether um, an authoritarian state can really have real innovation, real scientific innovation. Because when people are afraid to speak out, you know, and actually in academia, you know, there are, um, I don't think there's one really good academic journal in China, for example, because mm -hmm. it's so corrupt right now. And so, you know, whether without a, uh, you know, free flow of information and exchange of ideas, if everyone's always being careful about what they say, you know, can, can, can an uh, environment like that really foster you know, innovation, research, real research and development? China hasn't been able to show that yet. Mm -hmm. Phil, you're off to Moscow next? I'm going to Moscow in a few weeks, yes. To be the bureau chief for the Washington Post in Moscow. Yep, but something different. <laughs> but something similar too. In many ways. Similar They've and got something a few different. polluted cities there too. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> and uh, Dave, tell us just a little bit about the the package, the China package we have up on the web. So since Monday, we've had a, a, a suite of articles up online, um, mined from my uh, brief time in China and uh, some of the research I've been able to do in the U.S. covering everything from uh, uh, renewables in China to uh, kind of the state of the environment. Um, as well as some of these issues like indoor air pollution and uh, the carbon neutral city and the rest of it. Out of Mao's shadow, the struggle for the soul of a new China is Philip Pan's book. And, and again, our, uh, our China coverage is up on the web. Guys, thanks very much. Fascinating conversation. Thank you. Thank you. To get to Philip Pan's blog, just go to his books page at Amazon and scroll down to the link for the blog. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories, only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, the current U.S. population of red imported fire ants that infests millions of acres across southern states was founded by no more than 20 fire ant queens. Story two, contagious yawning, where you yawn because you see your friend yawn, can only occur in humans and other primates such as chimps. Story three, the world's smallest species of snake has been discovered. It averages less than four inches in length. And story four, the louder the music in a bar, the more beers people drink. Time's up. Story one is true. No more than 20 queens, and possibly as few as nine, were the founders of the gazillions of red fire ants that now infest the South. That's according to a genetic study published in the Proceedings of the Royal Society Biological Sciences. The tiny founder group originated in South America and stowed away on a boat that landed in Mobile, Alabama about 75 years ago. Ironically, E.O. Wilson, the world's foremost authority on ants, spent a lot of his youth roaming around natural areas near Mobile, just as the ants were getting a good grip on their new home. Story four is true. People in bars with louder music drank more in less time. That's according to a study in the journal Alcoholism, Clinical and Experimental Research. The music may get people more hopped up, or it 
just may be harder to talk, so might as well imbibe. For more, check out the August 4th episode of the Daily Cyan Podcast, 60 Second Science. And story three is true. A snake thin as spaghetti that can rest comfortably on a quarter has been found in Barbados. The Penn State research team that found the snake has also identified the world's smallest frog and lizard. The findings appear in the journal Zootaxa. Science has identified about 3,000 species of snakes worldwide. All of which means that story two about contagious yawning being limited to primates is totally bogus. Because a new study finds that human yawning can induce yawning in dogs. The study appears in the journal Biology Letters. The researchers think that the interspecies yawn transfer could be part of the complex ways our two species have developed to communicate with each other. What's that, Lassie? There's trouble at the old... That's it for this edition of the weekly Siam podcast. Visit siam.com for the latest science news, videos, and blogs. For Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.